Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel-Labrizzi. I'm Chris Delano. And I'm Carrie Thomas. Uh, and I'm sleepy, so maybe we <laughs> just cancel this episode. Because talking is effort. I think and you're I being a coward. I think you are a, a coward. coward. Yes, you are I scared. I am. I think I am a hero. I am quite heroic. I think I have inspired ideas about uh, how how great uh, taking naps is. Some might say I am monstrous, but uh, you know, uh, I strive to be the best me I can be. That was, uh, okay. I think that that hits most of the major mechanics from this block. You, you I'm literally that. I was on a roll there. I'm patting myself on the back early. Uh, I don't think you uh, deserve any tribute for that, for leaving off the mechanic of question today. Um, well, no, that's why I didn't say that, because we can only use the tribute to segue into the story later, after we talk about how Doctor Who previews are happening. Or yeah. Happened. By well, the time this episode is I think we'll know everything by the time this episode is out. Yeah, by the time this yeah. episode airs, all the Doctor Who stuff will be revealed. Um, it's neat. Also... There's like there's a lot of cool cards. Yeah, there, there's also a chance there will be an episode about Doctor Who and our Beyond the Multiverse out by the time this episode releases. Uh, we're going to see how that goes because uh, we are going to record one and we're going to have someone on to tell everyone what Doctor Who is because I I don't know. I don't know what Doctor Who is. I've watched a lot of Doctor Who and I don't know what Doctor Who is. So it'll be really so good to have someone explain it. There's this alien. Uh, his name is Jeff. He's a doctor. Um, but he Who? lies about his name. Uh, so they call him Doctor Who, uh, mostly because he's in likes owls. Uh, and so he travels through all of time and all of space, but mostly boomer era England. And <laughs> uh, I don't know. This is a lot of lies about Doctor Who to start. When does the plane chase happen? Uh, the plane chase happens in... Uh, uh, the tenant era is when the master tries to take over the world. They're they're on an airplane for a chunk of that, right? I think. <laughs> sure. Check out Beyond the Multiverse. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna have someone on to talk about Doctor Who, and uh, we might have another episode about it at some point because we've got a lot of time still left to kill before Lost Caverns of Ixalan comes out. We don't have like a lot, a lot of time, but we do have some more. We do have some more time, um, but uh, this week we're going to keep going with our story circle, which has been really, really fun, and I really enjoy it. And if you haven't listened to our other story circle episodes, why? <laughs> go listen to them. They're very good. Yeah, go listen to episode one, which was War's Wage and talking about Kataki and a short little uh, folktale like fiction and then. Um, episode two, Eater of the Infinite, a Rabia short story, even better. Uh, that a Rabia short story from web fiction, because it was online at the time in 1996. But this time we're journeying forward even further than Kamigawa and going to 2013 to 2014. Now, I, I, I do want to clarify before we get too far away. You mean story, our first and second story circle episodes, which if you're going by our yeah. canon, don't go back to 2000 number is uh, episodes 265 and 266. The, the, the two, the two right before this one. Yeah, I wouldn't advise starting at 2018. But for this one, we're going to 2013 to 2014. when Magic was going through a very fun period called our novels failed. <laughs> Can we keep doing them? And the answer was, yes, kind of. Um, we had the main fiction being delivered through e-novels, like The Secretist like Parts 1, e 2, and 3. Yeah, e-novellas, e-novels. I want to give them more credit than they gave themselves because they were pretty sizable um, when collected together. But we'll, we'll uh, to toe that line a little bit. And God sent parts one and two for the Theros block. So Uncharted Realms at this point is a side story outlet for kind of experimentation where many employees 
could contribute towards the weekly fiction, and that wasn't always a people who were then associated with the creative team. You had people like Sam Stoddard and Matt Tabak contributing, and they certainly had stories. I think Sam Stoddard even went through Tarkir Block. So, uh, um, yes, I know Sam had stuff here. Tabak, Tabak wrote the Fibblefip story, didn't he? Yes, yes, because yeah. why not? We need another week of fiction. Why don't we get the <laughs> rules manager um, to talk about <laughs> make Fibblethip into, I think, a Batman character is how he described him. <laughs> um, the the Fibblethip story is really fun. It's a good story. Matt did great. Yeah. And uh, talk about the origins of one of like the fan favorite minor characters in all of Magic. Yeah, kind of responding to the demand for uh any any kind of lore about that character but basically the wild west of who could write what for magic fiction through the website that's actually not till next year thunder junction and so we come to uh matt kanisel who is a magic story author throughout 2014 um, but also worked on creative text contributed to story and character development for Alicia, Alesha and Nahiri, and did a good deal of the research ahead of the Dominaria 2018 revisit after a decade away, where he was rereading all kinds of old Dominaria content and um, developing a world guide proposal for that set. So very much a name who left the story team, I believe, very soon after, um, if not around the time that these stories were released, but did a good deal of contribution towards magic fiction that is not exactly recognized today. So, I think Unsung like, Hero. It would have been 15 or 16. Um, yeah. Because uh, he's also responsible for the Bard and the Biologist, I believe. There you go. Which is uh, the second Chandelar Slivers story. And... Uh, the story basically responsible for this podcast existing because there is a lot of geographic information in that story. Um, you know, I talked to someone at the time who was talking about how Matt was trying to put a lot of geographical information about magic together. Um, and, uh, the details in that Chandelar story led to our Limdul is the Raven Man theory and uh, me, you, and Jay starting making content together. Uh, and now we're here. <laughs> yeah. Now we're here to review his debut magic fiction in the Uncharted Realm column, Uncharted Realms column, which was <laughs> later renamed to Magic Story after our brief, brief interlude of misnaming. Um, but his first story, we will dive into it right now, is called Cowardice of the Hero by Matt Kneisel. It's uh, published in uh, January 22nd, okay. 2014, it and it is for, uh, a preview article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they let them do whatever. This is Born of the Gods rare Oracle of the Oracle of Bones. Yep. yep, Oracle of Bones was the card for this one. But it had, as Chris had noted earlier, uh, pre-show, had a whole bunch of preview art from Born of the Gods set that wasn't public at the time. So a lot of uh, little first glimpses at what Born of the Gods would be. But we'll dive right into the story. Cowardice of the Hero by Matt Kneisel. I hate the man who married my mother. My father died in an accident when I was too young to remember him. My mother always shied away from telling me what happened, and I believe she instructed the farmhands not to relate the story. But even as a child, I knew he'd had an accident with a load of grain, or more likely rocks cleared from a new field. I remember once she screamed at me when I played near some of the wagons that were full after a harvest, pulling me into her arms and running me away. She never told me what happened to my father, but I knew. When I was a little older than eight years, my mother remarried. I always wanted to believe it was not out of love, but duty to the farm. The children of the farmhands were twice as old as me. There were five of them, all male, and unlike their fathers, who knew my own, they owed no allegiance to my family. 
there were whispers among them about trying to take the farmland from my mother. I heard them speak of this one night. I had followed them behind the stables. They found me and beat me. I told my mother a lie, but even as I spoke about falling down the hill by the river, my mother knew what had happened to me. Was my weakness why she invited that man into our home? Vinak was not a hero throughout the entire land. In our region, where half a dozen villages lay on the border of Arcos and the wilds, he was a legend. When I was ten, my mother married him, and, at the time, I didn't hate him. He was a living statue, strong and muscled with short black hair. He wore a necklace of various teeth and claws. He was even working on a bracelet to hang more trinkets. I wanted to be him. There were tavern songs about him. Poets wrote of his exploits. Not good poetry, of course but the atmosphere of worship compensated for the lack of rhyme. The sons of the older farmhands never challenged my mother once Vinak was in the house. All but one left and we hired new workers. It wasn't as hard as my mother thought it would be for me to adapt to having a new person, especially a new father, in my life. I could tell she was worried when she had introduced us and when he moved into our home. At the age of ten I was still in awe of that necklace and the stories of harpies and bandits. Just because one is heroic doesn't make him a hero. It didn't take long to see this. The true test of heroes should not be on the battlefields or saving innocence, but in how they live their lives. Vinak tormented the farmhands. He once told a newer, younger hire to clear the field, only to tell the farmhand he had cleared the wrong field. When I asked him why he did this, Vinak only smiled and talked about how the working man needed to stay busy lest they forget their place. He had a short temper as well, and while I was removed from the arguing between my mother and him, I could hear his shouting. I had thought she married him to protect the farm, for, ne for the necessity, but I soon realized she loved him. She did not want him to go on his adventures slaying monsters. That is what they argued about. She wanted him at home, but I don't think he wanted to listen to her. For my mother, this was marriage. For him, it was a necessity, a place where he could get free home and food while he wasn't fighting monsters. Years passed with him in and out of the farm. One time, after a night of shouting, I saw my mother's face was bruised. I confronted Vinak about this. He told me to know my place and struck me in the head. There were farmhands around, but who were they to stand up to Vinak? Who were we to get help from? The village saw him as a savior. Here was the truth I found when I was younger. Saving an innocent in harm's way does not wash away your sins. A vile person can behave heroically, but a threos will make the distinction when you are set to cross the river. Vinak was a weak man. He was a hero for years in the people's eyes, but did he always need that adoration? Did he fight his first monster so he could be seen as a hero? Instead of happening upon a monster in the wild, what can be said of those who seek out the monsters? Does their intent get outweighed by their actions? I couldn't help but see Vinak in the darkest light, a selfish, crude beast who made himself a hero so others would tell he wasn't a horrible man. I told him this. He bruised my face, chest, and arms. My mother threw him out. He tried to stay, but by then the farmhands came behind him, at least a dozen who finally knew their place, against him. Vinak left in anger. The village would talk about how unfair my mother was to the hero, how she was in the wrong. I do not know Heliod's ways, for soon she became ill. The gossip and, although I don't understand it, love she had for Vinak left her with failing health. There was nothing I could do. I prayed for days, sought remedies from Farika's disciples, but nothing seemed to help. My mother passed away when I was seventeen, and I was then in charge of our farmland. The Minotaurs continued to ravage the land, they have always been a problem here on the borders, especially near the swamps. Five to six in a caravan are preferred for traveling between the villages. Those who travel with goods are even more open to attack. Satyr love getting their hands on food, especially if they didn't have to harvest it. There are occasional harpy attacks, and a farmer three villages over claimed to have seen a hydra, but he's still alive, so not much weight should be given to that account. Sending the grain of my farmlands to another town or even north to a bigger city near the capital, is risky. At a recent village meeting, concerns were expressed. Minotaurs had been spotted on our roads and in our lands. A young scholar named Zerilli wished to speak to the Minotaurs. 
he gave a passionate speech among the villagers, stating that the Minotaurs were no different than us. He believed they opposed us because we had pushed them out of civilized society. They acted like bandits and marauders because we only saw them as that. He was met with laughter, but Zerilli continued. He made the case that they were intelligent, and would therefore be open to discourse and arranging a treaty. Since they had tribes, Zerilli argued, they had culture. Although they made weapons out of bones of their victims, the mere act of imagining the use of a bone as a club showed their potential for intelligence. Zerilli's claims were called naive. The scholar did not heed their warnings, and the young man's mutilated corpse was found later that week, arms torn from his torso, with the palms towards the sky, Zerilli's head resting on his own hands. An Akroan soldier on deployment in the area made a joke about how Zerilli would have appreciated the Minotaur's cultural expressions. I was 27 when I saw Vinak again. It had been a decade since I had seen Vinak, although I admit I thought about the swine every day. He arrived at the farm in the afternoon one day during our late harvest season, and I was surprised he still recognized me. I was no longer the scrawny child he beat. In those days, I joined the farmhands in the fields, just as I am told my father had. I was taller than him, although he did have more muscles than me. He still wore the necklace with his trinkets and three bracelets filled with teeth. There were a few more scars, too. I was pleased to see the age in his face, the whitening and thinning of his hair. I would not have struck him if he hadn't said, I need your help, son. He quickly reacted, most likely thanks to the years of combat, and knocked me to the ground. I'm sorry, he said. He kneeled to help me up. I came because... I... Sorry. Everybody needs your help. He did not make eye contact with me as he spoke. Get out of my home. Listen. You know the Minotaurs are growing in number. I need help. You need to be the hero, same as always. What? No, that's not it. If we don't halt the Minotaurs now, they will continue this course. Get the militia. Petition the king. The king doesn't send help he said, his face reddening. He only sends troops after people have already died. The two soldiers in town couldn't care less, and, even if they did, they'd not be able to stand up against their numbers. I knew this to be true. I know you hate me. I know I wronged you and your mother. I've never been a great man, but I know what it means to be a hero. Despite what you think of me, I do help people. He paused. Do not do this for me. Do this for your farmhands. If the roads become too dangerous, fine, I said, I will help. I had already been thinking of fighting back against the Minotaurs. My farmhands have families, and if we can't ship what we sow, they and I will go hungry. Vinak told me a plan to strike at the heart of the Minotaurs. A cruel seer that was rumored to have the ear of Mogus directed the feral beast, made them raid in groups and push farther into the human lands. Vinak's plan was to go into their territory and strike down their oracle. As Vinak put it, I've only fought beasts, one against myself, and in case you haven't noticed, I do not wear the horn or teeth of a minotaur. In the morning, we were to set out. I had two beds to spare, but that night I had Vinak sleep in the stable. While the hero slept for the first time on the farm, without the stupor of his spirits, I set out to Zerilli's home. I did not trust Vinak. I am not a good choice for this type of feat. There are others in town who know and like the cur, those who would love to help him. I wanted to learn about the Minotaurs. The scholar, although dead, did leave a small house in the center of the village. His family must have paid well for his education and home, because he did not seem to add anything practical to the village other than talking about books. Of course, I never met him except in passing, and this was the gossip of the town. His landlord agreed to let me look through Zerilli's possessions to see if I found something I'd lent him at a late hour for a few coin. When I got inside the home, I could see the landlord had given similar agreements to others. Most of the apartment looked ransacked of valuables. The books were still there, as were the scholar's notes. There was nothing there I had not heard before, and the research was tainted by Zerilli's idealistic eyes. After only an hour or so, I came across what I was looking for, proof that Zerilli used to justify the notion of treaties. There were records in the town ledger going back decades 
that the Minotaurs would take gold and crops in exchange for lessened aggression. The scholar thought a treaty would be possible because one existed before. What the poor academic missed was that the last account of transaction occurred over 30 years before, when, as the leader at the time wrote, they have asked for a price too high for our safety. As far as I could recall, there hadn't been any incursions since I'd been alive. The ledger showed that the escalation in demands went from crops and coins, to chickens, then to cattle. The obvious conclusion was that the Minotaur demanded men, possibly children, as their dark tribute. The village had continued to make these tributes in secret. I knew what the hero needed me for. Vinak meant for me to die. That morning, we set out. I brought a sword that belonged to my father. I also brought a dagger I hid in my waistband, one I didn't let Vinak see. If there needed to be a sacrifice, it would be him, not me, to meet Surili's fate. I was surprised to see he took off his necklaces and bracelets, but it made sense, as they could make too much noise. We walked in silence across the border into the marshy wetlands, where minotaurs were known to frequent. I had only been in the swamp a few times, and always with groups of people, either traveling through as a shortcut to some southern foreign towns, or to look for some missing villagers. We did not need to travel too far before we could smell them. Their fur must have been caked with their own excrement. There was a horrifying realization that they were so short a distance from the village, but chose not to attack. Vinak and I hid behind fallen trees and saw their camp. There were more than a dozen of the brutes, and around them the carcasses of now unrecognizable animals that had been gouged were missing organs, their bones strewn all around. The minotaurs sat and ate, some even sitting on the discarded bones, oblivious to the pain they should have felt. They sat around a central fire, which led to a cave. I brought you here under false pretenses, Vinak said, still looking through the branches. My dagger was already pressed against his back. He turned slightly, and I saw tears in his eyes. What are you doing, boy? You mean to sacrifice me, bastard? He tried to turn but I pressed the dagger harder into his back. One thrust would pierce his flesh. I did not know you were privy to the village leader's plans, he said, now looking again at the minotaurs. If I had known, I would not have used lies. This is monstrous. I would not have come along to die, even if you had tried to deceive me, I said, trying to quiet my voice despite my anger. No, son, he said, shaking his head. The sacrifice will be me. It was hard for me to understand how I felt. At first, I thought it could be another lie, some other deception. This was what I wanted to be true. I wanted him to die. When he told me this, all I could say was, good, he was startled by this, but then nodded. This doesn't make you a hero, I said coldly. This doesn't forgive what you've done, he nodded again. I know. We stood for a few moments. We both looked toward the Minotaur camp. Then Vinak started pushing his way through the branches. His sword was behind him on the ground. I needed to stay and watch what happened. He approached the minotaurs with his arms lifted, almost in supplication. They turned to Vinak and started to move towards him, some mid-chew, but he yelled, Tribute! Instantly, the minotaurs shuffled back to where they had been sitting, all their eyes on Vinak. He walked and stood in front of the fire, near the cave entrance. I saw the oracle emerge. He was even bigger than the other minotaurs, not just in size. I could tell this oracle received more food than he actually hunted. He moved more slowly than the other minotaurs had moved. I guess he was older, but I had no way of knowing. He wore a necklace of human skulls and a bone, which was probably human as well, through his nose. I offer myself as a sacrifice for the protection of the human villages of the Kendraki provinces that lay north of your lands, in accordance with the old pacts. Vinak said slowly, as though he had trouble remembering what he was to say. The oracle began to laugh, and the minotaurs around him growled. Without ceremony, the shaman slammed his fist downwards onto Vinak's head, pushing it down into his body. I heard his spine break. The body fell to the ground, and the oracle picked it back up, snapping it in half after some difficulty. A cloud of blood emerged, swirling around the minotaurs, who were then stomping their hoofs and roaring. The crimson mist began to swirl around each minotaur individually until the blood mist entered their nostrils. They breathed deeply of the dark magic. 
I do not know if what I saw happened next, or if I was confused and can no longer remember the truth. I thought I saw, behind the oracle, the shape of a minotaur, but one made of night sky. I thought I saw Mogus, but only for a second, and that was it. The oracle took the pieces of Vinac and threw them to the side, into a pile of animal carcasses. The minotaurs looked tired, but continued to eat and spar as they had before the ceremony. The oracle retreated back into this cave. I picked up Vinac's sword and returned to the village. I was met with praise. Everyone was sad the great hero Vinac had fallen, but so happy his son had been there to stop the Minotaur menace. It would seem the village leaders had spread some of their own lies before I had returned. I think Vinac wanted me to be a hero, to share whatever he would call a legacy with the closest person he could call a son or family. I let that man walk to his death. It stopped the Minotaurs, for now at least, and others would call that heroic. But despite the stories others will tell, I am no hero. I used to hate the man who married my mother more than anything in creation, but now the person I hate the most is myself. I, for one, really appreciate that the story has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, happy. Happy and the game. It, it ends. It certainly has an ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 the very next section on our agenda says general vibes and then the bullet point. One of the heaviest magic stories ever. Yeah. Uh, a statement of which I do not disagree. Uh, they, yeah, this story sure does just have a bunch of abuse and generational trauma. It, yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, it, and this is magic fiction. It's this is. certainly magic fiction from a point in time of magic's history. That is for sure. Um, yeah. I do not think this story would be published as a Theros side story today. This would not I, have been no? uh, a side story for Theros Beyond Death. Well, it doesn't have the three required legendary characters to <laughs> to make it worth so printing. Like, yes, I also agree. I don't know that a story like this would be published today. But to be clear, none of my statements about the content of the story are negative. Oh yeah, no, I think yeah. it's good. I um, oh, I have some some thoughts on some editing stuff, but I don't think that's really even worth discussing. So much as like. Oh, there were a few, few repeated. It's that I think a skilled editor would have caught. Yeah. Um, using Vinak's name twice. I think they did another word twice within a paragraph. It is um, stuff that could be cleaned up to make it a little. There, there's also uh, the fact that he says, uh, my mother remarried shortly after my eighth birthday. And then she married him when he was 10. And I'm like, which one is it? Shortly after you turned eight or when you were 10? Is it? both i'm confused ten, 10 i don't know if you know this 10 is shortly after eight uh 10 is a full 25 percent more life than eight <laughs> that is a significant chunk of time um so not when you're 40 here's where it's not when you're that's here's true. where the people here's when the people in the Vorthos cast discord server say Ixalan time oh god because that's our that's our excuse for little minor discrepancies like that no, just there were a few things where I was like I feel like uh we found this when we we're going back into the the annals of of web fiction it's just that like the issues of today where sometimes you're reading a web story and like there's a typo or an editing mistake or there's like a weird thing where you're like Huh, it seems like maybe a paragraph got changed here, but they missed this note. Um, and it still happened back in 2014, and I think it's fine. It's just a thing that, like, yeah. sometimes you notice it, and the thing you do is you go, okay, and keep going. Sometimes we bug Jay to bug somebody else who bugs somebody else who corrects it on the webpage. <laughs> sometimes but we do have to for, do that. That's for recent fiction. Um, but let's, let's start at the end. Yeah, um, yeah, this ending is sure is a lot yeah so i think i want to do these out of order mm -hmm. from from my notes but uh, i put why does the story choose to hinge on misrepresentation of character even in death and um i think the more important note is that we get denied the full catharsis of vinak's death twice because the first time you're going into this minotaur treaty 
and you're expecting potentially he has some grand statement to say about his life or to apologize for more than he kind of already tacitly did on arrival at the farm. Um, but he gets crushed. He is instantaneously crushed and I think the protagonist even mentally makes it a half joke marking it as unceremonious but also once the ceremony is over because the ceremony came after his death his mm -hmm. death was not the main focus of it and the second time when our protagonist gets to return to the village and is cursed <laughs> cursed with the burden of being one of the only people to have experienced this direct abuse and the town will only ever see him as a hero because that is in the village's interest is for this to this agreement that they have on the books to not be acknowledged and also for Vinak's legacy to live on. Yeah. So I, I hate it. <laughs> I, so I really struggled because I read this story and like my, my little notes at the very end for my notebook is just like, what was this story trying to tell me? Like, what was the, what was it like? what was the story saying? And it, it took me a minute to sort of understand it. I had to like look at your notes. Um, I had to think about it some more. Cause I was like, at the end of it, I was just like, man, there's just nothing good has happened here, but also like, it just seems like sad and violent. Um, and I think like, if I go back and look at the title of the story, cowardice of the hero, um, it's really just like a tear down of Vinak and like how awful and shitty that man is um and his cowardice up until the moment he died even going into the situation be like i am going to sacrifice myself and save the town um and then like the narrator who i don't think we ever get a name for um no. just straight up tells him like you're not a hero this does not absolve you of everything you've done and by like yeah i know but then he he doesn't try and get absolution. He doesn't like apologize. He like didn't like leave a note saying like, Hey, I was an awful person and I sacrificed myself to make up for it. He just is happy to die. Essentially a coward uh, that everyone thinks is a hero. So like just a, a real shit person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I specifically noted he was brave enough to die and quote knew what it meant knew what it means to be a hero and privately admit his abuse, but he still couldn't accept that fall from grace. He still needed to be living up to um, what everybody believed him to be, which was some kind of selfless hero who was going to give his life to protect the town from the Minotaurs, even though he's not even giving his life in the sense that everybody will believe it to be in the end he wasn't dying honorably he was ashamed of his role in it all yeah it, and it also like begs the question of like why why did he take the narrator with him like why did he make the narrator watch this um because that wasn't super clear to me either because like the narrator didn't have to be there he didn't play part in this um the only reason he was there as far as i can tell is to like create a story around him as a hero who helped save the town um, which I guess yeah. is like a gift from Vinak, but also like wasn't really like, I guess that's like Vinak's absolution is to make his, you know, would be stepson into a hero. But like yeah. the stepson didn't want or need that and didn't like seem to like really resent that. And I uh, you can't help but feel like maybe that was like Vinak just piling on a little bit more pain onto the whole situation of like. Not only uh, do you not get any, ab any absolution from what I've done in the past, but like you're going to have to live with this knowledge and also live always associated with me and the sacrifice I made. Um, just, yeah. Well, I think like the dose of reality in this is that he knows what he did was wrong, but still thinks like mm -hmm. there can be some redemption quietly. There can be. I I do think that Vinak thought there was kindness in letting his son be the witness in this situation because uh, Vinak probably 
didn't even consider like he still thinks himself a hero he does not consider the cruelty of knowing that his son can never change this village narrative that is already in motion by the time that they are leaving for the day because i mean he's just that's just how people are uh you're you're kind of believing yourself to still be this hero enough to make this sacrifice um yeah yeah one of the one of the things i look at in this story is that i don't know why i just pronounce story like a canadian um every character in this story finds a way to convince themselves something is true when it is obvious to everyone else that the thing is not true. Vinak believes he is a hero when he's actually just an abusive douchebag. Narrator's mother believes that she can sustain a happy marriage when it's very clear how destructive the whole situation is. The boy believes in a lot of things. Well, I guess we'll save him for last because he's most there. Um, Zarelli was the name of the scholar. Yes. Literally convinces himself that the Minotaurs will be amicable to peace. And that's connected to a violent other thing that I'm not going to talk about yet. But we'll get there. Uh, and the townspeople believe that Vinak is a hero and this boy is a hero despite all this other shit. And then the boy is kind of at the nexus of all of these things. Uh, and even has his own moment of believing and then doubting that he sees some kind of magical mogus magic shit. And you look at, like, so thematically, the truth, pleasant truths hiding ugly reality, or uh, pleasant lies or half-truths uh, hiding ugly realities is kind of a through line in this story. Both undermining um, concepts of a pure hero um resonating with themes of abuse and general tra uh, generational trauma um the way abusive situations are difficult to leave because it is easy for sometimes to convince yourself that things aren't so bad from within the situation when distance afterwards can everything can seem so clear or things can seem very clear to other people there's a lot of that just kind of at every stage of this story. Um, I haven't, we, we are not recording this at a time period where I've had enough time to process that more. Um, so I don't have an additional thought at the end there. Uh, but <laughs> to me, it's pretty clear where the thematic resonance running through this story is. And it's in yeah. uh, presenting the rancid vibes of abusive relationships um, at a familial level, at a uh, local level, um, at an idealistic level. Because uh, again, this is a story that says actually heroes aren't what they're cracked up to be. They are people and people have faults. Uh, and it And by... People have faults. It's not like, ah, oh, sometimes he's not the nicest guy. No, he just does bad things. Uh, and how he treats his workers, how yeah. he treats his family. Like he's like, just a bad, but like he's and there's no there's no comfort about it. These things just yeah. exist as truth. Yeah, and that's a mood sometimes. There, there's a part in the story where um, the narrator is is thinking about uh, how people think of Vinak as a hero, um, and he he brings up this this question of does their intent get outweighed by their actions, um, and I I thought that was interesting because the the question there is um, if a person goes off looking for a monster to fight to become a hero versus finding a monster that's threatening them and they fight it. Um, 
this the action is the same of fighting the monster but at the end of the day does the the intent there make a difference and whether or not you could consider them a hero um, and i think that fits into this this idea of like what we see and what reality is um sometimes we convince ourselves of things because they this man vinak would you know supposedly according to the narrator uh probably just went out and like found monsters to fight and went into their little you know clearing in the woods and just beat up some like poor hapless i don't know what monsters exist on theros other than hydras and minotaurs but some sort of monster satyrs satyrs are labeled as as monstrous enough in the story but but chris you have to remember the minotaurs are the violent other for using bone clubs of the bones that they killed and you're like well this guy's got an entire necklace yeah. and he's creating bracelets as we're speaking mm-hmm. of literal relics of the dead creatures that he's defeated oh yeah or dead denizens in some cases because there's definitely humanoid uh creatures on theros and though he didn't slay a minotaur probably hit up a whole bunch of others so oh yeah um, there's definitely an intentional comparison there between vinak and the oracle uh where like the oracle is wearing all these bones and stuff and like vinak did too um both monsters and the the point of the story at least um but also like zarelli said like there's more to the minotaurs they have culture and they have you know and we sort of have to learn this about them uh throughout all of the Theros stories we've had, is like the Minotaurs are not just like monsters. They do have a culture and, you know, religion and things like that. It's just, they also just like humans do wear the bones of the things they kill. Um, so, but I, I just thought the intent versus action thing was an interesting bit of like what the person intends and what they do, uh, aren't always congruous, but also like sometimes the intent of your action is, just makes your action, regardless of it normally being considered good, uh, bad. Like, it's just bad to do these things, even if you would, you know, because you wanted to do it in a bad way, I guess. If well, that, so, yeah, yeah I, I think one of the important world-building things that's, like, not part of the story, but from, like, outside the story about the Thurisman folks is the bones are their money. Uh, but so are, <laughs> so the, are the worms. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that they crush Vinak's head into his chest instead of pulling his hair up, uh, but not out. And out. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, it's because uh, they just want another chance at life. <laughs> or I think you should leaving in 2023. Yeah. Well, the latest season was good. Um, but yeah, no, the, the Minotaur is being portrayed as the violent other is, and you get, you get literally, I think, the perfect i want to say american specific but it definitely it it's probably a wider regional um wider world phenomena of like these naive liberal scholars believe that these other foreigns are civilized but they would kill them in an instant and then you even get afterwards the soldier commenting and joking about um the naive scholar who went to talk to them and how he would have appreciated their cultural expressions. And it's just, it reeks, <laughs> reeks of, uh, you know, the kind of xenophobia mm-hmm. that oh. they decided to oh. insert into this story already about domestic violence and abuse. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, am I, yeah. am I smelling Bush era politics? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is solidly uh, in Obama's second term. Metal Alchemist. Um, yeah. So, yeah, well, the thing about that is I think it actually does serve sort of an interesting point here to highlight the fact that, like, the the humans think of the, mon- the, the Minotaurs as monsters, but also, like, the humans act really monstrous. Um, so it's sort of like it is, I think, a little bit of irony in the fact that, like, this mm-hmm. xenophobia on the part of the humans uh when like everything they're you know crediting the the minotaurs for being monstrous about is stuff that they also kind of do um in just like a slightly different fashion and so yeah it is but it's okay for the humans to do it you know i i don't know if it is okay like (laughs) 
And by that, I mean, like, I don't know if the story says it's OK, because the story yeah. does vindicate Zerilli, where it's like, hey, does it? they go to the Minotaurs and the Minotaurs like do listen and respect a treaty. The thing is, is that the treaty, which the humans signed and or I guess, you know, agreed to in whatever form it was, includes human sacrifice. Um, and so it's like the humans are also part of this. They as much as like the Minotaurs are killing uh, uh, Vinak, it's like also, yeah, but Vinak is there as part of a human sacrifice that the humans have agreed to participate in. So it's um, it's a little bit like, you know, the pot calling the kettle black in this case, where it's like, yeah, yeah, they sure are monstrous. And this sure is some xenophobia, but like you're doing the same thing. It's it's a little bit of irony. I will. Um, I did write this down in the notes. Their, their deal is literally Mogus got of the slaughter's ability, which is sacking a creature or taking damage. It's just like you're going to be attacked unless you tithe to us um i ought i ought you know <laughs> that's how it is <laughs> but well it's it's also literally the tribute mechanic they they decided hey yeah instead of uh you attacking us and being bigger uh or instead of you attacking us we're gonna we're gonna give you some some tribute the issue is that our listeners know about mogus and not about tribute because <laughs> nobody cares about tribute right like no one it, does it it has to have been printed on a commander card within like the past three years when they were like, we can nostalgia hit up some of these mechanics and make one super juiced card that makes up for it existing. Yeah, I don't but, I don't know if we're going to get the commander card with the juiced up fancy. Oh, I get this mechanic now version of tribute or inspired or anything relating to the born of a god set. <laughs> um, god, there's like. 11 cards that have tribute <laughs> period were any of them printed outside of born of the gods no none of them have even been okay, reprinted so since born of the gods so so lorelei seems <laughs> to be correct here uh, but uh let's let's uh, hit up the difficult topics yeah. before we are we're fully off because um magic in its current state has tended to err on the side of catharsis and resolution and trying desperately not to drag real world difficulties into magic fiction if it possibly can and we have instances of this we have um doug byers comment on same gender couples being an accepted thing on ravnica and every magic world that was in response to a wiki page erroneously saying that Tomic and Rao's relationship was uh, looked down upon for homophobia when it was actually looked down upon for the entirely reasonable inter-guild relationship issue <laughs> for Ravnica. But, and then we have uh, recently the Eldraine story from uh, March of the Machine. March of the Machine was kind of downplaying the idea of love potions, uh, Quote, you and everyone else from here to Garenbrig, the witch said, love potions are creepy and we have bigger problems. Now hurry along. I must finish my packing. Which is a very, very soft lampshading by Jenna Helland in this case of the fact that love potions are a pretty key part to some fairy tale stories and would be an interesting aspect of Aldrain. Except culturally, we kind of understand that they are not the best plot device <laughs> and uh, skirt the line of consent very, very uh, closely for such a such a lovable family setting as Magic the Gathering, where flesh monster machines are invading your plane. And yet a love potion is critical to Rowan and Will's backstory, where their yes. father was uh, under the influence of a love potion taken advantage of uh and uh that's just a thing that exists yeah and like we get that kind of we get glimpses of like these problems can be introduced into the magic multiverse and also these problems probably shouldn't be introduced into the magic multiverse and i think the more recent stance has been um not 
sanitizing because I don't want to imply like it's a lesser fiction for wanting to mm-hmm. steer clear of these issues, but um, trying not to touch on them. And I think I put down also we had famously in Burn by Cl- Chris Latois that they do tackle extremely, extremely difficult issue of uh, suicidal thoughts, but in like the most tactful and prose written um probably 50,000 words i've ever read in a magic story because <laughs> that one was long but as artfully as it can be done in even this case with an anonymous character from a random theros village outside of arcos um or akros arcos is a different setting <laughs> there are very very few ways to do it tactfully and magic is probably better not taking the risk of doing it wrong because i think magic has taken that risk before for not as if difficult issues and still failed it so i would rather see them um as fun as the story is like it doesn't feel like it feels like a magic fiction because it's set on theros it doesn't feel like a magic story because this isn't how magic story is told now. This feels like it could be lifted out of magic and put into any short story collection, and it would be the same unsettling stare at a wall for 10 minutes feeling that I get finishing up multiple other stories. So, yeah. That's that's my final thoughts on it, because, you know, I'm rambling. I Yeah, I think... A lot of what Magic Story does now when it wants to tackle um, very difficult or very like, uh, I want to say traumatic, but what I mean is like stories involving uh, topics that are often uh, like real world traumatizing situations. Um, And Magic does, I think, tackle them even more than just like in Burn. I mean, if you think about essentially the entire story of Crimson Vow being a story about Soren coming to terms with the familial and generational trauma that he's experienced um and like dealing with that as like a big part of that story um magic doesn't do it as like i want to say like overtly as this story does like i just don't yes i don't see a magic story today that includes just a description of a parent beating their child like and not that this story has like a graphic description of it but it does mention that it happened and describes it in a way um, and I, I think magic is both like, I think it's better for not having those, but I also think that it is still tackling those issues just from a different point of view. Um, so I think that it's interesting because like I said earlier, um, I don't think the story gets published today and it's not anything to do with like, I think this is inappropriate. I just don't think this is the kind of story magic is going to tell, um, yeah. And I think that's fine. I think I defer to your I think yeah. I defer to your angle fully mm-hmm. where it's just it is just a different approach being taken now. Um I don't want to say that they're not doing it. It's just softer iterations that don't uh leave you like the uh, end of a episode of Succession where you're just like nothing about this is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but that's my my final thought on that, I guess. If one thing is for sure, Hashtag Ronald sweet. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Ronald just looking like I mean, the best stepdad ever. Every single time. Contrast against the absolute worst that has ever been presented in magic fiction. Oh god. Thank thank the Lord for, for Ronald. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to my my wrap-up thought for this is maybe not best delivered on the podcast. Uh um uh, and and maybe better said to specific individuals. Um, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people who, if they read this story, might walk away going, "I need to talk to my therapist about something real quick." Because um, I think- no, it's just magic story always has been and always will be corporate art. Um, hi, as a corporate artist who does corporate art for Magic the Gathering, like. I I understand that corporate art is still art. It has meaningful cultural value um, to folks. Uh, But its goals are different. And and frankly, 
most art you see these days is corporate art on some level because capitalism infects us all. Like that it's great that you loved Parasite and hate capitalism, but Parasite is a product of capitalism. It is still corporate art that a studio and individuals produced in a capitalist setting. Um even more so for Andor. I still don't know how Andor got made. Who at Disney <laughs> let Andor get made? Um, that doesn't mean corporate art can't hit heavy. Obviously, this story hits heavier than some of the other stories. I think if you're going to take swings like this, you have to commit to them. Um, Burn commits to it, uh, which is like one of the big successes of that story. It says, I'm going to swing at a hard topic. And I'm going to treat it with respect and reverence um, and honesty. And I think this story does the same thing. I think it picks a topic and says, hey, let's get messy and let's let that be okay. Most corporate art does not do this because this is inherently risky to your bottom line because marketing and press exist uh and expectations of corporate art exist uh and it's a space i would i would love to see i i think this is the best way to, i would love to see more fucked up magic stories yeah that is partially based on my own tastes uh I can tell you for sure that my tastes in general are a little more extreme than most people's. Um, God, I love stories where things just suck. Oh, anyway, I'm normal about horror. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I putting on a, a bow on on my thoughts for this is uh, this story is a big swing, and I haven't fully processed it. But the fact that I'm like sitting here being like. I read the story and I can't fully process it immediately is good, actually. That's a really good space for me to be in personally uh, and artistically. And I think more stories should put me in that kind of headspace. Um, so, yeah, I, I have read like two novels in the past few like weeks that have left me feeling a lot like the story did. Where like I ended it going like I need time to process what I just read, um, mm -hmm. and I think those were good. Those were two of like my favorite novels I've read in a long time. Um, so like yeah, I think having a story that has an ending that makes you go, "What did I just experience? What do I need? I need to think on this." Is a good thing sometimes. Uh we're over an hour. Do we want to skip like final thought, final thoughts, and just go right into the end here? Uh, yeah, I'm perfectly fine. I think I can make a final thought for all of us when I just say, uh, "Eris Morn, I love Eris you." Eris Morn, I am so normal about Eris Morn. It looks good on you. <laughs> oh God, it's so good. <laughs> Destiny Two seasonal story, so good. That's that's all we need to say about it. We can now just start so closing out the episode. Normal. And it also means all the lore, like now all the lore book stuff is public for the season, which now I can go read it because I don't read things. And there's only partial. When I, if I have to wait for story, I hate having to wait for stories. To Good news about Lost uh, Caverns of Ixalan, then, because we're getting it all in one day. Perfect. Anyway. Come discuss this story on our Discord server. <laughs> you can get access to it patreon.com slash the vorthos cast yeah if you tribute us as little as a dollar a month uh you can be part of our discord server which isn't how the tribute mechanic works but that's our segue <laughs> we're not taking the plus two plus two counters <laughs> or two plus one plus one counters apologies um yeah i mean we've been trying to have little lively discussions about these after the story releases obviously liveless and text chat kind of get our immediate reactions before and after the episode that is a slightly higher tier at Lorelei. Hey, what? It's how much a month? It's three bucks. Three. Yeah, it's three. It's three. <sighs> We're giving them too much of a discount here. <laughs> um, yeah, come listen to us. Come listen to us talk magic story live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. ish, depending on how our scheduling goes. That is um, Eastern time. Eastern time, yes. Um, 
I don't know how many more story circles we have in store for this, but I'm happy we kind of got to hit three major eras, 1996, early web fiction, um, the Kamigawa burst of vignettes, and this kind of modern era. But I'm happy you all enjoy it, and thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.